Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode 49, recorded on June 22nd, 2016. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, Julie. You're uh, super excited to be here today, aren't you, Mom? You've been talking about this podcast for a couple days, actually. Well, actually, because we both have uh, jewelry that was created by Linda, our guest, and we both love it, you know, it's just like a further extension of talking about something that we already love. And I really love it that you love it. There you go. <laughs> exactly. So our guest today, who you just heard from, is Linda K. Moses, and she's a full-time professional studio jeweler, which she's been doing since 1978. And she's exhibited nationally in galleries and a juried craft shows, including the Smithsonian Craft Show, American Craft Council Craft Fairs, and the Paradise City Arts Festivals, which is where Mom and I first met her and her husband, Evan, who works with her. And she has been teaching nationally and internationally since 1996 and from 94 to 2001 she was the jewelry and metals department head at the Interlochen School of Art in Stockbridge, Mass. And her work has been published in multiple books and magazines but she is the author of two books. One is called Pure Silver Metal Clay Beads from 2009. It's a workshop style book and she's also the author of a book called Root Stems and Branches A Recollection which came out in 2011. Um, and then she's also, she's a graduate of the University of Vermont, and she's received many grants and awards, including two Massachusetts Arts Lottery Council grants and three Massachusetts Cultural Council Professional Development grants, among many other things. So welcome, Linda. Well, thank you. I'm happy happy to be here, wherever here is. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere in cyberspace, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, so will you start out by just describing, for someone who's never seen your work, how would you describe it? Well, that's always a difficult question because there are so many aspects to it that I see. So let me see, let me try. Um, a lot of my inspiration comes from ancient objects, ancient artifacts, and ancient jewelry as well. And I also love ancient alphabets that have not been translated. So I kind of play with all of those um, influences in my work. And the work is primarily in silver, either sterling silver or fine silver, which is pure silver, with little details in 14 karat gold or 18 karat gold. And I also throw in a lot of stones because I love color. Um, and recently I've been um, adding uh, enamels as well because I love color. And uh, without the enamels, it's simply been the stones that have allowed me to, to add color to the work. Um, I most love to do the kinds of pieces that, that um, you both have, the pieces that incorporate um, a display enclosure that I have called nesting cases so that when the jewelry is not being worn, it's, it has a safe place to be displayed. Um, I love doing major uh, neck pieces and rings and earrings. Um, those are my primary pieces, although I also do fibula brooches, which is a brooch form that's based on the ancient fibulas that the Etruscans and the Romans and the Greeks used. So I want to interrupt for just one second and say that one of the things that I think is so interesting, I've always called your, uh, the cases that you, I call them sort of shrines. They feel like shrines to me of some kind. Well, I get that. And, and um, that, that's also, it's, it's a kind of an archetypal thing that human beings have. We love enclosures. We love boxes. We love shrines. We love reliquaries. And we love caves. 
And I think that it goes back to our origin as a species that we like kind of the safety of being enshrined by being surrounded by a safe environment. And that's what I try to provide for my pieces as well. But there's something special about jewelry that is um, collected in a specific location. Um, you know, all of the stores sell these wonderful, enormous jewelry boxes with the shelves that scissor out and and explode with um, different ways of displaying the jewelry or of protecting it or storing it. And, and there's something very intriguing about that, um, not just for me, but I think for everybody who loves jewelry. Yeah, and also, I mean, I, I do want to also mention to people that, like, um, one of the things you do is you reclaim a lot of found objects. Like, your love of the ancient and the old, to me, is also the idea of reclaiming these things. For instance, I have a piece which is um, two rings and a necklace housed in an old metronome. Yes, and I always like to say that when I made the piece, no metronome was harmed in the process. <laughs> so one time we did get a, a, a musician who was a little disturbed to see that there was a, a metronome case that at one point contained a metronome that was working, but it wasn't working when I got it. So I now I reassure people. It's a metronome improved, those. made even better. Yes, yes I think so too. <laughs> uh, and I know my mom has a piece that's two earrings in an uh, old metal eyeglasses case. Yes, yes. And those cases are so interesting to me too. Um, they're very protective. Again, it's a protected environment for all for eyeglasses. And, um, and I wanted very much to um, enclose those earrings in a safe place. And, uh, and that eyeglass case provided that for me. And I do love using found objects. But, you know, there are people who use found objects kind of uh, without thinking about it. They just kind of throw things together. I'm very, I do that very slowly. Because I don't want the objects to be just used because you love the objects. I want them to be meaningful in terms of the piece that they're containing. So, for example, the metronome case and the eyeglass case, I wanted to make sure that they were consistent with the theme of, in, in the case of the, the eyeglass case, the earrings that were going to go into them the case and also the piece that you have that the jewels that went into that were appropriate for that um, metronome case and I'm also intrigued with how clever a metronome case is how clever that eyeglass case was somebody designed those to do a very specific thing in the case of the metronome uh, it was to keep time. And of course, the neck piece and the other jewels for your, in your piece, um, they're all about time. They're all about ancient time. Mm. So it was an appropriate enclosure for those pieces. That is one of the things that I have noticed about your work consistently, which is that it's not just about aesthetics. Oh, this looks nice. It is also so much about storytelling, and I have a, I know I have a piece of yours that I've explained to somebody, because you explained to me, of course, you know, what each, what you were thinking when you put sort of each stone and bead and, you know, piece in mm -hmm. place, and I think that's so interesting, and in fact, some of your pieces include poems, right? Yes, that's true. 
as did yours. It did. Yes. It, it did and it does. And it still does. <laughs> yes. And I hope you read it every once in a while. <laughs> so will you talk to us a little bit about um, how this kind of work that you're doing now evolved? Like how did you start out making this kind of work or did this is this really an evolution of time? Well, you know, every artist, if they keep working, the work evolves. And, um, and that's true with my work as well. Um, I started out, um, oh, in the 70s, early 70s, doing a lot of beaded necklaces, ethnic beads. That was where I was at at the time. I'm just an aging hippie. So that was, you know, really appropriate for me. And those beads had just become available um, or more available than they had been in the past. But I really wanted to um, it branch out. I wanted to work in metals, but I didn't know how. And, and I, I, I'd like to back up a little bit here, too, because when I was a kid and, and um, I uh, had a lot of cousins. I didn't have any siblings, but I had a lot of cousins. And when we would visit my Aunt Violet, she would let us play in her jewelry box. Now, it wasn't her diamonds and emeralds and rubies. I don't know whether she had any of that, but she had one of those amazing jewelry boxes that opened up in 17 zillion different ways. And it was all her costume jewelry. And she let us put it on. And then we would come out and we would do a fashion show for all my aunts and uncles. I think I'm the only cousin that remembers this. It was the highlight of my childhood. I loved doing that. And I think what she did by letting us play in her jewelry box was to instill in me a love of wearable art and a love of gemstones. Even if they were fake gemstones, they were still, for a four and five-year-old, they were still fabulous. And they transported me to a place where I was really um, a princess or even a queen with a crown and with earrings and rings and maybe 10 necklaces on at once. I was in heaven. I loved it. And I wanted to be able to enter that realm as an adult, but I didn't know how. And um, at the time when I was doing the beaded necklaces, I was also a performing folk singer. And a friend of mine had seen me perform, and she was a goldsmith. And she started teaching at our local community college. She was going to teach a class one night a week for a semester on how to saw metal, solder metal, set stones. And I was able to take her class. And that was in 1976, and I've never looked back. Everybody in that class was sawing and wincing at the sound of the saw on metal. Mm -hmm. I was laughing. I was happy. I was grinning. I couldn't wait to learn the next skill that was going to come down the path the following week. I was just, I, I had found my way to making metal objects, and it, it, I've never looked back. I think sometimes when you find your thing, your place, your whatever, it it just sort of makes intuitive sense to you. You know, it's like you pick up that paintbrush or that torch or whatever it is, and you're like, I get this. It talks to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's that old expression like falling off a log. Mm. So easy. 
so simple. And for nobody else in the class was it simple. But for me, it was like I'd found my way home. And why did you end up choosing silver of all the different metals that you could work with? I love it. I love the look of it. I love the way it can feel modern. It can feel ancient all at the same time. I love how it solders. I love everything about it. Um, I love the feel of it. I love to look at it. Um, it. It just feels like the right metal for me. And it's interesting that you ask that question because um, a number of years ago, a friend of mine who only works in high carat golds, and I hadn't seen her for many years, she saw me at a show and she said, oh, Linda, I thought by now you'd be working in high carat golds. And it mystified me why she would think that. So because for, yeah, for me, the metal of preference is, has always been silver. And, and preferably a silver that will take a nice patina so that all the textures that I'm so fond of, all the dimensionality that I'm so fond of really pops when you give it a patina. Uh, silver is just a beautiful metal. And, and so many objects that have been dug up at archaeological digs, we, we get excited about the gold that we see, but there's also a lot of silver that survived. And I love looking at those pieces too. I happen to like silver too, but I do think it's one of those funny things where people do assume like uh, that it's uh, not a choice. Do you know what I mean? That's right. That's Which is right. Really it, interesting. It, it, a number of years ago, I I was reading um, an article online uh, by someone who worked in a museum in Great Britain, and a comment that he made, and I'm I'm really going to paraphrase it, just made me chuckle. He said, well, silver, it's just for knives, forks, and spoons. It's for utensils and pitchers and trays. It's not for jewelry. And I thought, oh, you're nuts. <laughs> That's just not true. But that was an attitude for many years that gold is the, it's the, it's the least reactionary metal. It's, it's gorgeous. It doesn't react with skin acid in its pure form. So it's highly wearable. Plus, um, the attitude about jewelry at one point was that it had to be gold and it had to, or, or platinum, and it had to have diamonds, rubies, sapphires, what my, my old friend used to call uh, red, white, and blue jewelry. Um, and of course, that whole attitude has changed completely in the past, I would say, 15, 20 years, that the preciousness is not always the inherent preciousness of the metal and the stones, but also in what the jeweler is trying to say. Yeah, and I also wanted to say that thing you said about reacting, like I think one of the most interesting things about silver is that it does react in age. And it actually reminds me, I went recently to see some public art on the Boston Greenway. And one of the pieces is this piece by Ai Weiwei that's made, it's these giant metal heads. And one of the oh, things... Yes that the curator had to discuss with Ai Weiwei's team was, this is going to be near water. It will get snow on it as well. It will patina. Is that going to be okay? And Ai Weiwei's team came back and said, yeah, it's fine. And I like that idea of patinaing and things changing with time and whatever. And certainly with your work, Linda, that is so much about storytelling and relics. And do you know what I mean? I think there's something so interesting about the possibility that the silver would change. I love it too. 
because it's, it is in um, evolution. It is moving along the path of time. And that is fascinating well, to me. Also, I think so much of your jewelry as stories, like each of your pieces is a story. Mm -hmm. And in storytelling, I think one of the things that happens with any good storyteller is the uh, listener or watcher or whoever it is becomes a part of the story with their reactions. And to a certain extent, then the wearer of the jewelry becomes part of the story of that jewelry. So it makes sense that how they use it, live with it, will change it. I, I love that you said that because I love the idea of the wearer becoming part of the jewelry. Um, and becoming part of the story that the jewelry is telling. What I also love is that many of my collectors come back to me and tell me the story of the jewelry. And, and that to me is fascinating, that they have found a path to um, uh, their own story about the jewelry that I made, that I had a story about, but now it's become their story. That's thrilling to me. Um, and when you talk about um, jewelry that has the capacity to change over time, uh, a number of years ago, uh, Thomas Mann did a project that he called the Burial Project. And this is maybe 25 years ago. And what he did was he approached a number of jewelers all around the country and I think around the world and he asked them, or not just jewelers actually, potters and weavers, he asked them to donate a small piece to this project and then he was going to combine their pieces and bury them. And then at some point he would exhume the piece to see what the earth had done to his construction. And, uh, and he did this with, with all of the pieces except for one. And that piece was a, um, a, an, an assemblage um, that I contributed a piece to. And uh, it was hung on an outside wall at Snow Farm, the New England Craft Program. Mm. It's still there. It's still <laughs> aging. It's still changing. And the piece that I had given him was a pendant that was made using an old um, tintype. And, uh, and that, of course, aged even faster than any of the other parts that were included in that assemblage. But it's still hanging on a wall at Snow Farm, an outside wall that gets a lot of sun and a lot of rain and a lot of snow in the winter. It's an interesting idea of taking sort of the idea of assemblage, which is, of course, putting many often disparate things together to create something new, but actually taking pieces from a wide variety of artists to create that. Yeah, it was. It was a fascinating project. And when I talked to Tom a few years ago, he was surprised that the piece was still hanging there because his intention was that after a few years, the pieces would be taken from where they had been buried or hung and shown somewhere. But this piece just remains in place. Well, also, I think I think many people are fascinated by, I mean, there's two things, which is one, many people are fascinated just by decay, the idea of decay. Yes. And what happens, and I mean, I know I've seen a ton of art projects online that people do where they take bundles of fabric and paper and all sorts of stuff and put it in their backyard for a winter and bring it back in to see how it, you know, changes. Not to mention the millions of tutorials about how to distress things, right? Yes, right. I'm sure you know from patinating metals all the time, like how to make it look like it's been around for a thousand years. 
And yet the intention for me in putting a patina on the piece is not so much to age it, although it accomplishes that. It looks like it's accomplishing that. But it also, um, whatever texture I've put on the piece becomes much more prominent when you put a patina on it. So I'm accomplishing two things. One, I'm approaching the the idea, the concept of the older ancient antiquities that I love so much. I'm approaching that in my work, but I'm also attempting to make what I've done with the piece show up better, be more, um, oh, make have more of a conversation. Um, so I've kind of I kind of derailed the story of how you got into making this kind of jewelry. <laughs> So we were talking about dress up, which is also something I remember doing as a kid and love doing. And I love something that you said about jewelry making you feel like a queen, because I think that is one of the things about when you wear um, something that you love, which is it just changes your attitude about the whole day. Yes, it does change your attitude about you, about your surroundings, about what you can accomplish. Um, you know, Aldous Huxley said uh, that transcendence for human beings can be achieved through stained glass windows and gemstones and of course illegal drugs i mean that was that was huxley but but he said that um the the clarity of colors can help human beings get be, get outside themselves um and, and he referred to it as a transcendent experience. And, and I love that. I love it that when I combine um, the gemstones that I've used in pieces that tell a story, that those pieces have the quality of transforming the experience for my collectors. Um, that's kind of thrilling for me. Um, because my conversation with my collectors, with you and 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 with Eileen, my conversation goes on. It never stops. When you when you take my pieces home, those pieces I I hope keep talking to you. Well, they do, and certainly I've noticed that when I wear them, other people talk to me too. Yeah, right. <laughs> it does happen. I will. I'll tell you a funny story though. I'm I was walking up Broadway in New York a number of years ago. And walking towards me, and it was winter, and walking towards me is a woman wearing a coat, and on her coat is a brooch that I had made. But I didn't know this woman, and she wasn't someone I had ever met at, at a show. And I assumed that she bought the brooch at a gallery, and I was getting very excited as she's walking towards me, and I walked right up to her. Now, mind you, it's New York City. I walked right up to her, pointed to the brooch, and said, that's mine. Well, she freaked out. <laughs> She said, "No, no, no, no! It's mine." <laughs> and I had then I had to explain to her that I had made the brooch, and I was very happy to see her wearing it. But so anyway, <laughs> she was very protective of of the story that that brooch was telling her. Well, I'm just curious. I mean, you, I, you, uh, obviously, I know sometimes when I have bought a piece from you, you've you've been like, "Oh, I'm sad to see that go. I need a moment to say goodbye to it." So obviously oh, yeah. you get very attached to your work, I have to imagine, and of course to, you know, where it goes and the kind of life that it lives. 
you know, do you, I mean, do you get attached because of the stories attached to it? Do you get attached to it because of the time you spend with it or because it came out of you and it's your hands? Like what, what do you think that it's, relationship is? It's all of the above. And I also have felt for many years and I am, I'm hard put to explain it. Um, well, let me back up a little. For years, and even now, when I finish a major piece, even my some of my smaller pieces, I stand up from the bench and uh, walk to wherever Evan is, my husband, and I want to show it to him. But as I'm walking, I am saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't know who or what I'm thanking, but my sense is that there's an energy, for want of a better word, that is coming through me as I'm working and um, cooperates with me as I'm making a piece. So everything that you said is true about why I'm attached to a piece, but there's also that element of sharing an experience with some kind of understanding energy. Uh, I have no way to describe it any other way, but it works. I mean, you know, people talk about being in the zone, and I think being in the zone really means just being open. Once you have the skills, just being open to bringing those skills to whatever you're doing. And um, as you become more and more skillful, it becomes easier and easier to get in the zone, to be open to those influences that you know are all around you. I mean, every, the air is vibrating around us. Who knows whether that's what's cooperating with me? I don't know. But I do know that I always feel so thankful when I've finished a piece. I think that thing that you said about skills is so important. Because I know that oftentimes there's that gap between what your imagination is and what your ability is. Yes. And, um, and who was it who said you need to put 10,000 10, hours into learning Malcolm skills? Gladwell. Wasn't it yes, Malcolm Gladwell? That's right. that's right. And I think it's true. I think it's absolutely true. Also, um, Edmund Wilson said the art of writing is the art of applying the seat of your pants to the seat of a chair. <laughs> so he was saying the same thing. Right. It's, and so was Yoda. There is no try. Either do it or don't do it. Right. Right? Absolutely. And so that's what Wilson was saying and, and Gladwell also, that you just have to keep doing it to become accomplished at it. And that talent, well, talent is a mix of, I think, a mix of feeling passion for a particular experience or activity combined with that 10,000 hours of doing what it takes to make what you want to make, whatever it is, whether it's building cars or, or writing poems or making jewelry. I agree with you, which I think it takes a lot of time to be able to develop skills. And I think, um, you know, I wish there was a shortcut to a lot of things. But, you know, the value of it, it feels so valuable to me, having spent all the time to acquire the skills and having made all the pieces that didn't necessarily exhibit professional level aesthetics. But that is very valuable. 
I I oftentimes think that it would have been, I would have been a different jeweler had I gone to school for making jewelry. Um, if I had gotten a BFA or an MFA, um, the guidance that I would have received, the information on um, learning the skills would have been different. But because I'm primarily self-taught with a number of workshops under my belt, because I, I needed help learning the skills and understanding what I was reading in books and taking that initial first class at night at a community college. Um, I, I think that the, the skill learning process was so intense and so valuable that I, I don't think I could have gotten it um, working towards an MS, MFA. I feel that way about myself that I sometimes I regret that I didn't do art in college. Mm -hmm. um, but now I sort of feel very happy with the fact that I sort of never learned the right way to do anything. And of course, I've taken, there is no right well, way. Yeah, and of course, I've taken a million classes and stuff since then, but that I never went through that kind of training. It feels good to me because I feel like I, I sort of struggled through to find my own way. And I, I like that. Yes. Yes. And you give yourself permission to, uh, to do it any way you want. Um, I, I, when I taught and I, I've now retired from teaching classes because I'm getting old, but I, um, I always would post, um, quotations every morning, um, on the walls, wherever I taught, just things to inspire my students. And the last year I taught, I came up with a phrase that I, I liked myself, that I had written myself. And it was, the best part of taking your life in your own hands is you get all the applause firsthand. <laughs> and that's what you're talking about. When, and when you learn those skills um, on your own and you apply them in unique and individual ways that you might not have discovered. You might not have walked those paths if you were in a more structured environment or a structured learning environment. The thing is, like, you know, I know about myself that I'm a goody two-shoes and I always like to do exactly what the teacher says and, like, you know what I mean? I find that hard <laughs> to believe. <laughs> when it comes to school, I, you know, I do have a Chinese mother after all, so I do try to do all that stuff. Watch it. <laughs> so, oh, the but, mother always gets the blame. Exactly, right? <laughs> but so, you know, it, it's interesting to me that having to, that actually having to find my own way has actually I think made me feel more comfortable with not always doing things the way that they're supposed to I mean even just so I went to a paint and sip party recently which is basically where you paint a picture everybody paints the same picture and at mm -hmm. first I was like oh I'll just paint anything I want and then I got there and I was like no I'm gonna be a good student I'm gonna do exactly what the teacher says wow which was just funny you know yes yeah, I'm, and I know exactly what you're saying. And, uh, and, I, and I, in school, was kind of that way as well. Um, you like to please the, the teacher. You like to bring an apple for the teacher. Yeah. You, you want the teacher to notice who you are. It's very important, I think. And a good teacher does notice every student. Um, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's one of the criteria for being a good teacher. I think so. I think people come but, to classes and it's really important for them to feel like somebody's uh, paying attention, listening, whatever else. 
Yes. Yeah. It's I, I think it's critical to the learning experience that if you don't get that kind of attention from your instructor, um, you're missing something. Because it's not just skills training when you take a workshop. It's really about interacting with new personalities. And you get so much from that. And that's one of the things that I really will miss about teaching. I learn so much from my students. And I, I, and I tell them that. I told them that. Um, when you bring so many disparate minds together, everybody learns. Everybody learns. Yeah. The inspiration, the room is just palpable with inspiration. It's wonderful. It's a great experience. But I'm talking about um, workshop situations as opposed to a very structured college situation. Um, and in a workshop, it's much freer. And I always, uh, even though I always set up projects for my students to do, I always told them, you don't have to do the project. You came here to learn the skills. The project will teach you the skills. But if you want to do something else that uses those skills, that's great, as long as you get what you paid for. Yeah, I always say, like, I, I, want, you, I want you to leave class feeling empowered. Yes, yes. Because the, that you can go home and use the skills to create what is in your heart. Exactly, because that's always the worst thing is when you take a class and then you go home and you're like, I can't make anything except that thing with the teacher's supervision because I don't actually know yes. what I was doing. Yes. Yeah, and it's it's hard, though, because there are those students for whom the skill is everything mm. and they haven't gotten to the point where they're able to plug into their passion. They don't even know how to articulate what their passion is. Yeah. Uh, they don't have the vocabulary for it. And that's where the 10,000 hours comes in, too. Because somewhere along the path of the, that 10,000 hours, you find your inspiration. You find your influence. You find what um, will inspire you for the rest of your career using whatever medium you choose to use. And I will tell you that when I first started out, I, of course, was drawing on the, the influences that that most appealed to me. And I made a piece that I thought was really fantastic. And I sent it out to a show as part of an application package. And at the time, this was, the, this was a show that would send back the comments of the jurors, which I think is very valuable. And I wish other shows did that. The comment, I did not get into the show. And the comments were all the same. This is very derivative. But this was like the third year that I was making jewelry. Mm. I was I was an embryo and I was just I was I was imitative. And that's one of the best ways of learning by the way is to imitate what you love until you reach the point where you have developed your own aesthetic vocabulary that allows you to speak with your own voice. I agree. I tell people all the time, there's nothing wrong with imitating and doing things, but I think at a certain point you have to find your own voice once you've done that. And I do agree. I think that the 10,000 hours is the way that you do that. It's that by the doing it constantly, constantly, constantly every day that somehow you come through in the end. If you don't, you're not, you're not focusing. You're not... You're not putting the seat of your pants in the seat of a chair. You're, you're not opening yourself to the zone do you, that is just waiting for you. Do you make art every single day? 
Just about, yeah. Um, I'm in the studio. When I'm preparing for a show, I'm in the studio at least eight hours a day. And that's not, you know, five days a week. That's seven days a week. And do you have a studio that's um, somewhere away from your home or do you have a studio that's in your home? It's in my home. Makes the, yeah. makes the commute easier. <laughs> and the commute is easy, but it can also make you really crazy. Um, I, I'll, you know, be getting ready to go to bed at night and remember, oh, there's something I forgot to do in the studio. And either I ignore that call in my head and can't fall asleep or I go into the studio and do what I'm expecting myself to do. Um, but, you know, I love it. I love it. I, I was thinking the other day when we, we, were, we just did a Paradise City show in Northampton, and it was a brutal weekend. It was in the 90s. It was just so hot. And it was hard setting up, and it was hard being there in that temperature. And I was thinking about how I whine about that a lot. When, in fact, it is um, kind of a blessing that I have the kind of outlets that I have to sell my work. And that along with that blessing comes the 90-degree weather occasionally and setting up and tearing down a show and being there for eight hours a day and driving to whatever show it is. It's all part of the package. You don't get to make the jewelry or pots or weavings or paintings without having a place to sell them. Be otherwise, you have to buy a warehouse <laughs> because you'd be storing the stuff and you, wouldn't, you would not have the wonder of seeing your collector's faces when they see what you've done. You wouldn't have that. So you, you get the whole package. You can't have one without the other. Unless, of course, you're dealing with galleries. And, and in recent times, the number of galleries has gone down. So the wholesale world for uh, people in crafts and in the arts in general has changed considerably in the past, I would say, five to ten years. I mean, at one point, we were doing wholesale when my kids were younger and I was going to, I was looking at putting them through college. Um, I did a lot of wholesale. At one point I had 150 shops that I was making jewelry for. You, you would not have liked me then. I was not very pleasant to be around because I was working, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. It was exhausting. And, and it wasn't why I started making jewelry. And I, you know, I was doing product lines along with my one-of-a-kind pieces. And the one-of-a-kind pieces are what I want to make. So when I finally didn't have to do the wholesale anymore and didn't have to deal with um, galleries and shops, um, I backed off that. And I dropped out of the wholesale shows and just cut back on the number of shows I was doing. And now I'm only doing four shows a year, which to some people sounds like a lot, but at one point... Um, my husband and I, were, we did 21 shows in one year. Whoa. We never did that more than once. It was crazy. It was crazy. So for people who are unfamiliar with the kind of shows that you do, will you just tell us a little bit about what those shows are like and what setup and stuff involves for you? Oh, sure. Um, I have, um, let's see, I have about eight cases, display cases, that have to fit in our van. And all the accoutrements that go with that are... Um, 
our um, uh, charge card information, all the boxes for the pieces. And, and that just means, you know, the, the paper cardboard boxes for people who buy a single piece of jewelry. But it also means my boxed pieces need to fit in the van and they take up a lot of space because we have to pack them very carefully. So by the time we leave for a show, our van is packed so tightly that we, Evan, who usually drives to the shows, he can't see out the rear view mirror. It's filled floor to ceiling, right up to the back of the, the uh, um, driver's seat. And um, we get to a show, and then we unload all of that, set it up. Um, our cases are partially assembled, so we don't have to um, assemble from scratch. We, we bring um, a pipe and drape with us so that we can hang curtains that separate us from our, our neighbors in, at a show. We bring all our own lights. Um, and so when you, when you apply to a show, the kind of show that we do, we pay for uh, essentially renting the booth space, which is an empty space. And, uh, and then we pay for electricity. Um, we bring with us, if it's going to be a show like this past Paradise City show, we'll bring a cooler full of ice and a big fan uh, and a chair. One of us is always standing in the booth because otherwise, how are we going to talk to our collectors? Um, we usually try to bring a big vase of flowers because it makes the booth more personal more intimate and it feels uh, like a happier space to be in and since we have to be in that space usually for three days eight hours a day um, we'd rather be in a place that feels comfortable to us um, sometimes we have to bring floor pads because the floor underneath is concrete and uh, not easy on your back and on your hips and on your legs and uh, we have to find a way to get food now. The Paradise City shows always have food, so that's helpful. And then tear down, just you do rewind, and, and uh, it's uh, just backing up to, to getting everything into the van again. And the drive home. So I heard a nightmare story. I over I was eavesdropping as I often do uh, from <laughs> one of the other vendors at Paradise City, who said that her car in the parking lot was broken into, maybe at the hotel, mm. maybe at the thing, and she had basically, you know, her entire stash of uh, jewelry and stuff that she had made stolen. And I'm wondering if that's a common occurrence or very unusual in your experience. Um, it's not that unusual. Um, knock on wood, it, it hasn't happened in recent memory, but yes, I know the jeweler you're talking about. Um, <clears throat> and she's not the only jeweler that that's happened to. There have been, um, a number of such, uh, break-ins. Usually, um, the people who are going to do it will wait until, uh, something is unguarded. As in any situation where somebody's going to uh, steal something, um, they'll uh, they've figured out ways. Uh, they'll track you after a show or uh, watch you at a show. Sometimes there are people at shows who are not supposed to be there when you're tearing down a show, and so jewelers are very very cautious 
with the jewels once they're not in the display cases. We're very careful. We're scrupulously careful. Uh, Evan and I uh, never take our eyes off off the work. And uh, when it's packed up and um, uh, the first thing we do when we tear down is to pack up the jewelry and put it in a safe place. Um, and and we don't... Um, we don't take our eyes off it. We don't let it out of our sight. Well, I have to imagine that's uh, one of the things where you really have to have two people. Because even in unloading the car, how can you... One person's got to watch what's in the car. One person's got to, like, be watching what's going in. One person's got... You know, I mean, practically you need, like, four people. Well, you can also hire a security person. Um, and I know people who have done that. And uh, sometimes shows have security lockups. Um, we don't talk about it much. Because we really don't want anybody to be aware that there might be a location at the show that has that is storing all the jewelry. We don't want anybody to know that. Uh, so, I mean, that's um, a very nice convenience that some shows have offered in the past. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all it takes is one moment turning away from whatever is holding all your jewelry and it will walk. It's almost a guarantee. There's, there, are, there are always dishonest people. Uh, unfortunately, it's true even in the art world, especially in the art world, if you think about the Is Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum mm -hmm. theft. Uh, we, that's also part of the package. We live with that. And, uh, and we've learned to be very, very cautious. I was going to say probably even when you are like showing jewelry to somebody, it's very difficult. And I do know that when I try jewelry on on the show from any vendor, they're very careful about taking the pieces back mm -hmm. you know, as soon as yes. you stop trying them on, not just leaving them out. Yes. And um, I've learned the hard way that, I'm, that I have to do that. It's only been um, – I've only lost two pieces – um, in 40 years of making jewelry. Wow, knock on wood. So, That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and that was my own fault. That was my own fault. I just wasn't focusing on what, what I should have been focusing on, and, and the pieces walked. Um, it happens. They're, they're out, you know, dishonesty is out there. It's, it's kind of uh, hardwired into humanity, into our species, and um, being civilized and decent takes hard work. It's easier to be dishonest. <laughs> That's it's unfortunate, but it is. And and you know, you know we have to uh, in every walk of of our lives we have to work very hard to be civilized and be kind and be good to each other. It's true, and I do believe that thing that they always say, right, about be kinder than you feel, because you never know what else somebody else is going through. That, yes. Absolutely. But it is. It's hard work to be good, which is why I'm so bad. <laughs> yes. Anyway. You're taking the easy path. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> so um, I know you have a new project that you're working on. Can you tell us, give us a little uh, preview of what that is? Well, I'm very excited about it. Um, you know about my book, Roots, Stems, and Branches, A Recollection. And that book originally was all handwritten on very large um, watercolor paper, and it was also hand illuminated by me. Um, I did it all in colored pencil, and um, and I loved it. And then uh, I published it, 
and you have a copy of that, the hardcover. And um, at the end of each chapter, there's um, a part of the one of the illuminated letters that appeared at the beginning of each chapter. And I had a number of my collectors say to me, Linda, those are pieces of jewelry. And it hadn't even occurred to me. I didn't even think of them as jewelry. They were just part of the drawings that I was doing for the book. So I took another look at them. And damned if they weren't right, they're jewelry. And so I took 10 of the pieces and I've made 10 enameled pendants. I'm very excited about them. I can hardly contain myself. I'm sitting here in my chair, kind of bouncing up and down. Um, I'm going to, and they were expensive to make um, because they're pretty hefty. Um, So I'm going to do an Indiegogo campaign. I'm working on setting that up um, as we speak. No, not as we speak, but but the the past months I have been working on that. And I just I'm all I want to do is try to recover my expenses um, for making these pieces because I was driven. It was one of those moments of my passion just carrying me. I could not I was eating, sleeping, drinking these pieces. I couldn't sleep, couldn't fall asleep at night because I was so excited about where this was taking me. And I've learned more about, I mean, I've, I've been enameling for a number of years, but in very limited ways. Um, I didn't actually want the enameling to be the primary focus of my jewelry, but these pieces demanded it because they're so much about color more about color and form. And um, and so when I set up this campaign, for eventually when we get to that point, um, that's, that's my intention. My goal is to recover the expense, what it costs me to make the pieces. And um, I can't wait for you to see the pieces. I'm excited now. I'm, for those of you who I'm actually not familiar with what Indiegogo is, is it like a Kickstarter style thing? It's like Kickstarter. It's crowd, crowdfunding. And um, Indiegogo differs in a number of ways from Kickstarter, but the primary way is that even if you don't make your minimum, uh, you get you get the money every each time it's invested. You get it. Okay, so like with Kickstarter, if you don't make the money, you don't get any of the money, right? Right, but I I also think that Kickstarter has two separate programs now. I'm not familiar with Kickstarter, but I think the other program is you you can agree to take less than what you you uh, initially required, and I think that that's an option. And um, but I'm not sure how that works because I haven't been investigating Kickstarter. Interesting. Well, cool. Yeah, I, mean, I think that'll be really neat, and it must feel exciting to be doing something, you know, a little bit different. I'm I'm thrilled, and what it did for me was it um, it was like um, a kick in the butt um, about enameling hmm. and bringing all this color out and learning how the enamels work and how they work together. I mean, I've I've experimented with enamels. I've used them for years, but um, never with the uh, never have the pieces been almost completely about color. 
So this is just, uh, it's, it's a wonderful departure, but it's not a departure because they're my designs. And I am incapable of designing anything that doesn't look like my work. So uh, it's, it's been wonderful. The other wonderful part of it, of course, is that it is a continuation of what I was doing in my book. I like that so, idea, too, by the way, that you said about you're incapable of designing anything that's not you. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of people get caught up in, like, what's my style? What's my style? What's my style? You know what I mean? Yes. And I think yes. that uh, you have to have confidence that if you're creating from the heart and things that you're thinking of, do you know what I mean? Even though if it doesn't look like typically the kind of work you make, it's still in your style because it's coming out of you. It's almost unmistakable that it's that it's mine. And um, I will um, look at work um, online, in books, in magazines, and I'll see something that I think is really wonderful and I'll think, mm, I could do something like that. And then I realize, but why? Mm. I, I make my work and this would not be, this would not relate to my work at all. But then I look at the work and I figure out what it is I love about it, why it's so appealing to me. Is it the technique? Is it the design? Is it the color? Is it the stones? And then I can extrapolate from that and say, okay, well, maybe I want to bring that particular aspect of what I'm seeing into my work, how this person, how she interpreted working in metal. Um, or working with stones or et cetera. I think that's a fantastic point because I know that the biggest leap for me that came in making my own work was when I started to really break down what appeals to me about this. Why am yeah. I attracted to it? And then you start to really figure out that's kind of how you find your style. That's right. You find your voice. Well, it's again that 10,000 hours. You're learning to speak your own language. And, uh, you know, it takes babies a while to learn how to speak their own language. Um, for artists, it's even harder. Well, uh, speaking yeah. of people who need to learn language, Mom, you've, you've been such a chatty Kathy on this podcast. <laughs> Sorry to dominate. You're still, you're still there, I right, I'll tell you that I didn't speak because I'm finding this conversation so tremendously interesting. Uh, but I have two Two questions and then a comment. The first question is, can you uh, take us through sort of your process when you think about putting together a new piece? Everything you make now is unique. You have philosophical and literary, historical and different artistic strands that you're weaving together. And I wonder if you can just talk about how you give birth to a piece. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, and I'll, I'll use um, a piece that, um, that Julie has, um, the um, Soul Search piece. Mm. Um, I was interested in investigating Judaic symbology simply because when I was a kid, um, as with most kids, I was taught very elementary understanding of Judaic symbology. And, um, and I always felt like I needed more. But I didn't get to the point of wanting that until a number of years ago. And started with um, a couple of different pieces, and one of them was the, the Soul Search piece. I wanted to research 
what the Jewish experience of the soul is. Okay, so I started doing research online and in books, and it turned out that there were a number of different Jewish souls. And I, I'm, I was very uneducated, really, as, as a Jew, and I, I really wanted to educate myself further. And so I discovered the Hebrew words for soul, the different kinds of souls, and the, the transliteration, the, the pronunciation of it. And I incorporated those elements in the piece. Um, I learned to do a little calligraphy, Hebrew calligraphy, so that I could do that. And then I wanted to think about, uh, I wanted to bring in the elements that I'm, I'm good at. I'm, I'm not a Talmudic scholar, so that's not what I'm good at. But I wanted the piece to reverberate with an understanding of the concepts of these three or more souls. And so I, what I brought to it was my understanding of uh, stones and metal and how they could give voice to this powerful powerful concept of the the different kinds of souls in Judaism. So um, I started assembling forms that I felt would would work to do that and stones that would work and a final shape for the neck piece that became the final piece. I hope that answered your question. Um, I, I can also talk about materials. I mean, I, I do use silver and fine silver. My fine silver comes from uh, metal clay. Um, and I don't know whether you're, um, the people who are participating in, a, in your podcasts know what metal clay is, but it's a wonderful moldable metal that you fire and when you fire it in a kiln or with a torch, it centers the metal comes together and forms uh, a solid piece of metal. So I use that. By the way, as a little known fact, many, many years ago when PMC first came out, my mom and I got certified up at the Fuller Craft Museum in a weekend workshop on PMC. Oh, very cool. Little known <laughs> workshop. <laughs> little known <Yeah>. fact. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Um, yeah, I taught um, at the Fuller um, a class in PMC beads many, many years ago. But at, at any rate, um, the, um, the elements that I wanted to bring to soul search, one of them was, I tend to think of the soul as something that can lift out of the body. And so I wanted to have the enclosure, the nesting case for that neck piece. I wanted that enclosure to have the capacity to lift out of itself. So um, the piece that, that you have, Julie, you know that that, that boxed mm. piece rises up and, and uh, an displays the neck piece. It's an catalog drawer, is it? Am I crazy? Uh, candle. Mm. Uh, candle. It's an antique candle okay. drawer. Yeah. Uh, probably early, mid-19th century, mid-19th century candle drawer. Yeah, it was beautiful wood. You can't see the wood anymore because Linda embellished it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did, and it's displayed in my living room as we speak. 
This is All right, so that's my first question. And the second is, are there any things that you've created that you either can't or won't sell? Yes. Yes, I have a neck piece that I made, um, oh, in 2013. I was diagnosed with a double cerebral aneurysm. Wow. And I'm fine. I'm fine. Had a great procedure. But... I needed to focus on positive things before I had the procedure. I needed to, and it was a very tough year. My son was sick that year. Our dog was sick that year. All within the same month, we were all diagnosed. Mm. And so I was a wreck. And uh, what I love um, best in life, aside from my family um, and my dog, um, was I love making jewelry. And so I made this neck piece as a focusing agent for me to remember the positive things in life. I, and so that neck piece, I will never sell. That, that Understandable. Ep epoxied to me. <laughs> um, I, um, I, at the same time that that was going on, I also did very large-scale drawings of mandalas for my son, my daughter, my son-in-law, and my daughter-in-law, and my husband, and myself, also to keep me focused, to, um, to, to maintain um, a stable emotional environment while I was going through that. So, and those, of course, I will never sell. They, the kids have them, and we have ours. And yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Very good question, though. That's a really good question. I don't know whether any other art jewelers um, do the same kind of thing. Um, I would suspect so. I would uh, close my part here with a comment, which is in listening to you and looking at your creations and looking at Julie's art, I think the two of you actually have some similarities, even though you work in different uh, mediums. I mean, first, obvious, the bright colors. You both really like the bright colors, and there are layers and layers to each thing that you uh, create. And then I think there's a very thoughtful use of your own personal lives that comes through the, the jewelry or the mixed media or whatever it is. And then it resonates back for you and pushes you further into something in your life, which then comes back in the creation again. It's, it's the art is not like a separate thing that each no. of you does. It is a part of you and what, what your daily life is. Why? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that um, I suspected that about Julie and about Julie's work. Um, you, I, I don't think that you can make work that is worth making without that kind of personal investment. Um, you, I, I, I've seen work that just bores me to tears. And it's, and it's because it's very cool. It's very divorced from passion. Uh, it doesn't have that life. So funny story, that, I was going to say, I've never liked cubism. 
I've always sort of way to I've go. Always, way I've to always go. sort of been like, uh, okay, I like understand why it's important, but I don't like it. Like it doesn't appeal to me, right? And it's, then right. right, and then I took a class, and the teacher said this was completely an intellectual exercise. Qism was an intellectual right. thing for everyone, and I went, oh my god, now I understand why I don't like it. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, I was just going to say it was an interesting experiment. Right. It's the kind of art that I look at and I say, oh, that's interesting. Yes. yes. And, I, you know, and then walk away. And I, you know, I have artists that, uh, that really turn me on. I love Klimt. Mm. You know, I would love Klimt. I love Matisse, but not, I'm not that fond of his cutout stuff, but, but his paintings. I love his use of color. Um, I love Van Gogh. I love Monet. I love the great impressionist colorists. They're, they're wonderful. And I, I love uh, the Pre-Raphaelites because they put a lot of passion into their work. And it, was, and, it, and it was kind of an intellectual exercise for them because they were, they were protesting the kind of art that was being produced at the time. But at the same time, it was so full of life. Everything they did was just so filled with life and light. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Rant over. Well, I mean, I think that's one of the, but that is also part of being an artist, though, is knowing what you like and what you don't. And, like, it took me a long time to be able to say, oh, the reason I don't like this is because it's intellectual and not emotional. And now that I understand that, it just makes me less feel like, you know, why does everybody else like this and I don't? What's wrong with me? Yeah, that's a, that is the voice, that little nagging voice that you need to turn off. And um, I've I've heard my students speak the same way. It's uh, it's not necessary to listen to that voice. Um, you know, there's a lot. To, how to say this? Art dealers' business is selling art, and they will sell. They're like used car salesmen. They'll sell anything, almost anything, to make a buck. And I have listened to art dealers talk about why something that I find completely uninteresting is worth looking at. And I realize it's just um, the emperor's new clothes mm. to me. For want of a, a better cliche, <laughs> it's it just some of it is just meaningless to me. It doesn't move me. It doesn't thrill me. Doesn't excite me. I don't smile at it. If I can't really engage, forget it. I'll go where I can. Well, I think that part of the exciting thing about art is that there is, I mean, there are people who don't like the kind of emotional art that I like and only like that kind of clean, cool, intellectual, or do you know what I mean? And yes. I think that's one of the fun things, which is there is kind of a personality. And one of my favorite things about jewelry or wearable art, which you put it, because I feel like jewelry is such a small term for what it really is, mm. is that that is a way that I can like walk down the street really expressing who I am you know, and saying it like yes. with jewelry, I think so much so because that's what appeals to me. And so I always think like when I meet somebody, if I like their jewelry, I often like them. I know that sounds crazy, yes, but yes. like, I'll be like, oh, you're probably my kind of person because we have the same taste in jewelry. Yeah. Well, yes. And I think you can make that assumption because that is their vocabulary. 
that's that's what they're saying to you this is who i am this is the language i speak and if you speak this language you and i are going to understand each other and i do remember one time when we came to see you at the paradise city arts festival mom was wearing some jewelry by an artist that she likes very much and she was like and she said i have it. who's that artist mom who makes the who used to make those earrings and stuff that you love it's dk ross yes. who who's actually was a friend uh Yes, Linda's. and that's what I mean, which is suddenly you were like, oh, I know, that's D.K. Ross, blah, blah, blah. And, and it was like, oh, of course, we like your jewelry, we like her jewelry, why wouldn't we like, you know what I mean? Yes, yes, and D.X. and I were really good friends. D.X., sorry, D.X. D.X., yes. Um, she, and, and you asked about pieces that I won't sell. I made a ring a number of years ago um, in metal clay, which D.X. never saw. She's was she left the planet before metal clay really was available but um i made it as an homage to dx and so i will never sell it that's another piece that's mine forever so yeah um and and we always felt that our jewelry could coexist in the same display case yes so speaking the same with the same voice um and yet our pieces were very different but interestingly enough, the galleries that like DX's work also carried my work. Which also makes sense because, of course, gallery owners pick the kind of stuff that they themselves would buy or like. Yes, and if they don't do that, they can't exactly. sell it. Okay, so we are way over time because we just got to oh, chatting yeah. so much here. So I'm afraid we have to wrap things up. But uh, I have two qu online questions for you, which is, one, if people want to find you online, where do they go? lindakmoses.com can you spell that for people who are just listening to the podcast uh, oh sure it's l-i-n-d-a-k-a-y-e-m-o-s-e-s.com and could you sell any of your work online it's all online and with prices but you and i know you both know that you need to hold it you need to touch yes. it Oh, you so, need to wear it. <laughs> you need to wear it. So um, we do have a calendar on the website um, that lists the shows that I do. And people can come to the shows and see the work in the flesh. They can also call me. They can contact me through the website and we can talk about possibilities. And what do you know, happen to know what your next show is? Yes, my next show will be Columbus Day weekend in Northampton. It's a Paradise City Arts Festival show. Um, you can go to their website, and I'm not sure um, what their URL is, but if you just Google Paradise City Arts Festivals, it'll come up. And I have a web page with them as well. Awesome. And that will have my booth number and where you can find me at the shows. I would say definitely worth more than a look. I love the pieces I have, and I always get complimented on them, and it makes me happy to know that they're, you know, <laughs> stories. It makes me happy, too. There you go. Okay, so cool. So, Mom, do you have anything that you would like to just wrap up and say? No, you've dominated the show, and <laughs> now I feel like I'm in a corner and I'm not allowed to speak. Uh oh, oh I know, right? <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, if you want to find me, you can find me at ballsdesigns.typepad.com. And of course, we want to hear from you. So leave us your comments or questions at ballsdesigns.com backslash arting, A R T I N G. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag arting podcast. That's all one word. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast. <laughs>